In June 2020, a petition was circulating in the city of Toronto. This was nothing new or surprising. You've likely gotten a few chains from friends on WhatsApp or your phone asking for your support on a specific project or a situation or an event. For this petition, a local resident and activist named Andrew Lockheed recognized the history attached to Dundas Street and thought a name change was appropriate considering the conversations on anti-Black racism that were taking place in the world. As the petition was shared, more and more people started learning and questioning who this Henry Dundas was and why his name was controversial. City Council received a petition signed by over 14,000 people calling for Dundas Street to be renamed, citing its namesake, Henry Dundas's role in delaying the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. On receiving the petition, Mayor John Tory asked City Manager Chris Murray to form a working group of staff, including the city's Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit and the Indigenous Affairs Office, to examine the petition and make recommendations on next steps. This past week, on July 14, 2020, City Council voted 17-7 to 7 in favor of renaming Dundas Street in a bid to promote inclusion of marginalized communities. This has reignited quite the conversation about decolonizing our city, but we're not alone, as cities across Canada and the world have been wrestling with this same question for years. In 2017, the city of Vancouver passed a motion to make 150 street names more diverse. In London, Ontario, a school name is being changed from Ryerson Public School to something else. Rumina Morris, the city director of anti-racism and anti-oppression, told the CBC that the city of London is currently undertaking a review of bylaws, policies, and standards connected to street naming processes and approvals. We've seen several instances of protesters toppling statues across the world. For example, on June 6th, the statue of Egerton Ryerson that stood outside the university that bears his name was toppled following a demonstration in Toronto after the discovery of 215 Indigenous children buried on a site of a former residential school in BC. The school issued a statement that the statue would not be restored or replaced. Now, there was already a growing call over the years from staff and students of the university to change the name and for the statue to be removed due to Ryerson's role in the development of residential schools. Egerton Ryerson was one of the uh, founding fathers of the residential schools. Phyllis McKenna is an Indigenous student at Ryerson. She and others say this statue of Egerton Ryerson is a painful reminder and needs to come down. They decided that no Indigenous person should have an education over grade three um, and that we should be trained to become servants and farmers. Egerton Ryerson was a Methodist minister, educator, and politician back in the 1800s. He's also considered the architect of the residential school program, a devastating policy that resulted in some 150,000 Indigenous children being removed from their communities and stripped of their culture. In other parts of the world, similar things are happening. In London, UK, for example, statues of slave traders like Robert Mulligan came down. Street names dedicated to historical figures with dark pasts are being reviewed for change. In 2015 in South Africa, students at the University of Cape Town led the toppling of statues of Cecil Rhodes, the father of apartheid. In the United States, across several states, statues of Confederate leader Robert E. Lee is being taken down, as well as statues of Thomas Jefferson and Christopher Columbus. 
So, who was Henry Dundas, you might be wondering. According to a website on the petition, Henry Dundas, 1st Viscount Melville, was a prominent Scottish lawyer and member of the UK Parliament. He held several high-profile cabinet positions, including Home Secretary and Secretary of War. In the former capacity, he worked in concert with West Indian interests to obstruct the abolition of trafficking in enslaved persons. The most controversial part of his legacy is his role in delaying the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade during the 1790s and the subjugation of First Nations communities in Canada as Home Secretary. Dundas Street was named by Lieutenant Governor John Graves Simcoe, who made a policy of replacing Indigenous place names with what he felt were more appropriate British names. This is why Toronto was once called York. Like many colonial administrators, Simcoe chose these names from the powerful people and places of his home country, Britain. Henry Dundas never stepped foot in Canada, let alone Toronto, but his name is recognized as the big street name. There are parks and squares across southern Ontario named after him and even a small city. On hearing the news of the petition to change the street name from Dundas, his heirs wrote an op-ed in the Bay Observer, which is a local paper for Hamilton and Burlington. In it, they shared their disappointment and said that there was data that absolved Henry Dundas's legacy that was not considered. They state that many ways his legacy was actually in support of enslaved people, but the main one is that he recommended amendments for the gradual end of slavery rather than an instantaneous one because he didn't think it would get support to pass through Parliament and to get the necessary approvals. So that's one reason that they say uh, his legacy has been misconstrued. So with all of this, you may be wondering, why does changing street names and taking down statues matter? A Guardian article puts this really beautifully as the blindness of the everyday. Virtually all Western cities are monuments to colonialism. Think about it. Either these cities were superimposed on earlier indigenous settlements, like New York, or they were founded to support the trade in slaves and natural resources, like Cape Town in South Africa, or were substantially built with capital extracted from colonies, pretty much any major European city that you see. Statues are public art, and public art, if it celebrates individuals, should celebrate individuals whose society believes are worthy of celebration. That means we as a society can change our view of our historical figures. But who decides who's celebrated? Who decides when the good outweighs the bad? Journalist Murad Hamadi says, in quotes, Decisions about who we commemorate, which events and peoples are recorded in the history books, and what narratives we tell ourselves about how we got here have real consequences for our societies and the place of marginalized groups within them. Essentially, when we commemorate someone, we are deciding to honor them. We are preserving them in a specific vantage point, often as an image of a great person, a great man, and they're usually men. What does this mean, though, for the people who have been harmed by these figures, historically and intergenerationally? For many people, 
These statues and street names represent racism, oppression, and genocide. In an interview with CBC after the toppling of the Ryerson statue in Toronto, Skylar Williams, a Six Nations of the Grand River member who has been acting as a spokesperson for the 1492 Land Back Lane, says, in quotes, Statues of colonial figures like Ryerson are iconic symbols about the genocide of our people and akin to having a statue of Hitler in the middle of Times Square. Some activists have been making change in their own ways for years. Have you noticed the Indigenous names of some of Toronto's biggest streets, like Spadina, DuPont, or Davenport? If you look at the street signs, you'll notice that there is the Anishinaabemowin word for that street on top of the official City of Toronto signage. This is in thanks to the advocacy of activists Hayden King and Susan Blight, who, with their project called Ogima Mikana in 2013, placed stickers with Indigenous place names on Toronto street signs, like Ishpadina for Spadina. King said, in quotes, These were the names thousands of years ago when the First Nations people were here. By doing this, it shows that the First Nations people are still here. We're still on their land. We share it, but we're still on their land. We are going to take a short break, and we will be right back. We are so grateful for the support of listeners like you. Please continue to engage with us on social media. We love hearing from you. One way that you can support the No Nonsense Anti-Racism podcast is to write us a review. Write us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, particularly Apple Podcasts and Google. This helps us get factual, contextual, relevant information out into the universe as far as we can. So please do take a few minutes out of your day and write us a review. We would love you for it. So does changing street names and taking down statues change or edit history? Some say yes. Some people say that they are afraid that by removing statues and by changing names of buildings, we're erasing the country's history. Others say that we can't judge a historical person's actions based on contemporary standards. On the other side, some people say no. People like Sir John A. Macdonald and Egerton Ryerson will still play an essential role in Canadian history and are present throughout textbooks on history. We can acknowledge history without commemorating its actors. In an interview with Global News on the removal of Sir John A. Macdonald's statue in Regina's Victoria Square, Sean Carleton, an assistant professor in the Department of History and Native Studies at the University of Manitoba, says in quotes, Commemoration and history are different. Whether or not you no longer have a statue in Victoria Park, McDonald doesn't get erased from history. We don't stop teaching about his complicated legacy. Similarly, Professor Robert Alexander Innes tells us, in quotes, Even though there are many statues of McDonald, the fact that so few Canadians know the history of his genocidal policies inflicted on First Nations and Métis peoples speaks to how statues and commemorations can act to actually erase history. Many Canadians don't know the history of residential schools in Canada. Similarly, many do not know the history of slavery and the intentional destruction of Black and Indigenous communities in Canada itself. In some ways, the commemoration of these figures has done exactly what critics of their removal are arguing. 
it erases history from national consciousness. Maybe these demonstrations and petitions are a call for a more accurate discussion and display of our history, one that includes the horrible and the negative as much as the positive. In many ways, the demand for commemoration challenges Canadians to rethink their perception of Canada and its national identity. It begs us to grapple with the full weight of our history. So, let's be honest. Statues are not a way that we learn history. They are a way that we commemorate certain parts of it and certain actors throughout history. Another question people ask is where does this end? Renaming and taking down statues. There aren't many historical figures who don't have some aspect of problematic ideology behind them, especially here in the West, where we celebrate white supremacy in every institution. But at the same time, we are making history every single day. I hope that children will look back on these years of anti-racism advocacy and see it as an important part of our collective struggle towards a more just society. How do we mark and commemorate these moments? Returning to the Dundas example, there has also been some criticism from Black Torontonians. Shireen Taylor, an award-winning music and culture writer and filmmaker, recently wrote for Bloomberg City Lab about the proposed $6.3 million feat to rename Dundas Street and how Black people need more than merely symbolic gestures. She begs the question, in quotes, what does it mean to change the name of a street if oppression, racism, and the remnants of colonialism still have a home, end quote. And she makes an excellent point. Highlighting the plight of Black people living in Toronto, Taylor writes that the $6.3 million that the city of Toronto is preparing to set aside would be much better spent improving the lives of its Black residents in material ways. And she gives some examples, such as gentrification and homelessness. Gentrification, under the guise of revitalization and urbanization, has had a storied history of pushing out Black people from the communities that they found homes in and have built communities around, most notably Regent Park, just east of Toronto's downtown core, and Little Jamaica in the city's West End. And when it comes to homelessness, Black people are overrepresented in homelessness in Toronto. A 2018 report indicated that 31% of the city's documented homeless people were Black, even though Black people only make up 7.5% of Toronto's total population. And one more really important thing that we need to talk about, police brutality. Black people are and have been disproportionately arrested, charged, and subjected to violence by Toronto police, and this was most recently shared in a 2020 Ontario Human Rights Commission report. Shireen goes on to say that, While renaming and muralizing are important, residents of Black Toronto are no stranger to how they've been used as tools to exclusively quell concerns with no action afterwards. While name changes can be transformative, they can also be empty. Across the United States and in Canada, we've seen the irony of Black Lives Matter murals plastered on streets where Black people are still bleeding. So Taylor goes on to argue that the money should be invested into improving the material condition of Black people in this city. And this charges us to consider, beyond the symbolism, what actions must be accompanied to really support marginalized communities? And it is an important point. 
because we cannot let these actions happen in a vacuum. It's one part of how we arrange our environment and our institutions to be more anti-racist. After all of this, I should also mention that I am a member of something called the Partnership and Accountability Circle with the City of Toronto's Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit. The Partnership and Accountability Circle is a group of Black Torontonians who share with communities what work the Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit is doing and advocating for, while also feeding back insights to this City of Toronto unit of what we're hearing from community. So we act as middlemen and women, communicating up and down what is happening at the city's policy level and what's happening within Toronto's Black communities. As part of this group, I'm working with CABR on the project of renaming Dundas Street. Many, many Torontonians shared that they want it changed, and we will be consulting with community to find out what it can be changed to. Updates are going to come your way. So what do you think? After everything that we discussed, do you still think changing street names and taking down monuments is a waste of time? Engage with us on social media and tell us what you think. Remember, to engage in this conversation respectfully, any trolling, racism, harassment will not be tolerated. We want a nuanced conversation as adults, okay people? This episode was researched by myself and Beverly Osuzua. Jade Sullivan manages our social media. See you next week, folks. Take care.